If you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Jonah. For those of you that are visiting with us today, we have started here a while back going through every book of the Bible, giving our people a kind of an understanding of how the whole Bible goes together. And uh, one of the things that we're doing here is trying to give a complete overview and picture of the Bible book by book. And then we'll go back and in some kind of order at some point we'll start attacking the books book by book going through all the material. But what we wanted to do is give our people a, and really future generations too of people that came into our church that said, you know what, I'd just like to get a complete overview of how the Bible goes together from Genesis to Revelation and, and what are the books about? Because when I read a book of the Bible I really don't understand uh, you know, what that book is all about, and this will give you a, a chance to do that. So, not only did you get a bookmark today, but uh, we're going to give you a free CD of today's message back there, Jason. Did you hear what I said? So, at the end of the service, if you just go back to that handsome-looking guy with the goatee back there. Uh, oh, he's not here today. We'll see Jason then. <laughs> just kidding. Got to keep have a free CD for you back there, and if you, I have been told by some people who don't like my preaching that they make great skeet, so if you want to do that with them too, you know what, I'm a big boy, I can handle it. Anyway, the book of Jonah, we're glad you're here today. Now, the book of Jonah is one of the books written before the captivity or the exile, and it's written to the ten northern tribes like many of the prophets have written. And in many ways, believe it or not, this little book, Jonah, is one of the most important books in all of the Bible. Last week we looked at the smallest book in the Old Testament, and that was the book of Obadiah. And Obadiah is an incredible book, as you saw last week, that really laid out some great concepts that even in, as New Testament Christians we need to see and understand. But the book of Jonah uh, is an incredible book. And like I said, in understanding the Bible... Understanding God and what God's plan is and what God is doing, there's no greater book in all the Bible than uh, the book of Jonah. Because what the book of Jonah does, uh, it really lays out the fundamental doctrine by which the Bible uh, exists. Now because of that, the book of Jonah is the most attacked book in all of the history of the Bible. There's no other book that is maligned more than the book of Jonah. In all the Bible. It is the most single hated book that I've ever seen among Bible teachers, Bible scholars, and even some Bible or some pastors. And yet this book for the Bible believer is one of the most incredible books that really lays out some great truths and concepts and principles that what we're going to look at today and try to understand. Now I'll tell you why the book of Jonah is such a hated book. The devil hates the book of Jonah. And the reason why the devil hates the book of Jonah is because the book of Jonah lays out and deals with the greatest doctrine in all the Bible. And that great doctrine, the greatest doctrine, is the doctrine of the resurrection. Let me tell you something. We've got a Bible that we read and we believe. We all talk about the Lord Jesus Christ living inside us, and He is our own personal Savior. We talk about heaven. We talk about New Jerusalem. We talk about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Whatever event you can think about in the Bible that is a Christian concept, whatever 
aspect of Christianity, the Word of God, personally, you can conjure up in your own mind. Let me just say this to you. It is absolutely worthless if the resurrection is not true. Everything that we believe as Christians comes down on one doctrinal teaching. And if this one doctrinal teaching isn't correct, then nothing about your Bible is, nothing about our salvation is, and nothing about God is. And that is the doctrine of the resurrection. If Christ did not die and come from the dead and rise from the dead, then the Bible teaches that, that everything is worthless because that is what it's built on. So that's why this great book is so maligned and so hated by the liberal minds and the liberal Christians and the liberal people who really don't like the Bible but want Christianity to be some kind of nice concept that we just have without believing anything that uh, is life-changing. Because the book of Jonah deals with the greatest single doctrine, as I said, in all of the Bible. Now, consequently, because of that, the devil hates it too. Because the resurrection, I'm going to give you a little history here, the resurrection spelled the doom for the devil. Believe it or not, and I don't know how much you know about the Bible, I don't know how much time you spend studying it, but let me give you just a little background. Up to the resurrection of Christ, the devil, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, had the keys of death and hell. He was the in charge of death. And uh, all through the Old Testament, that's why nobody could go to heaven. That's why when they died, they had to go to Abraham's bosom. That's why there was no place where they could go to be with God, because to do that, they would have to resurrect. And nobody in the Old Testament could go to heaven or resurrect because no man had ever died and came back from the dead. So we find that in the Old Testament, even though when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom. This is all in God's plan now. The Bible says that the devil has the keys of death and hell. When Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that he went down to the center of the earth, Abraham's bosom, for three days and three nights. The Bible says that while he's down there, he preaches a sermon to the Old Testament saints. We're not told the details of that sermon. We're not told the outlines. It was two outlines, three outlines in a poem or whatever. We're not told what the message was, but we know what the concept of the message was, and that is, you know what? I'm going to defeat death and the devil, and I'm going to lead captivity captive. And the Bible says on the third day, on the third day after he was died on the cross, he rose from the tomb, and at that point, the devil has been defeated. The Bible says when Christ shows up in the book of Revelation, he has the keys of death and hell, because now he has defeated the devil by one concept, the resurrection. Now that's why the devil hates the resurrection. And people who are associated with the devil, that's why they will hate it too. This is why the unsaved world takes the story of Jonah and throws it in and lumps it in with all the other mythology that is out in the world today. When you go out on a clear night and look at the stars, in those stars, those stars are made up into constellations. Those constellations tell a story. Now, originally, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the gospel of the stars, or the story of the Bible, can be found in those constellations. That's not astrology, it's not even astronomy. It's, it's the Bible teaching of the heavens do declare the glory of God. But through time, all the Gentile pagan nations, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, 
all of those groups, the Greeks and the Romans, they took those stars and they made up fabled stories called mythology. And you'll find much of those mythology stories are, are actually stories about the Bible or things in the Bible that have been destroyed with all kinds of worldly concept. Now the reason why they did that is because when you come to a story like the book of Jonah, which is the fundamental backbone of the resurrection, they wanted to lump that story in with all the other stories so you think that Jonah was a fable just like the story of Andromeda who if you would go out tonight, you can see the constellation Andromeda as it, as it kind of juts off the uh, northwestern side of the constellation Pegasus, the winged horse. And then right over here from Andromeda you have Perseus. Perseus was a man. Andromeda was a woman. You know where this story is going. He fell in love with her. Oh, but she was, she was thrown into the sea. And a great sea monster called the Crackhead, I mean the Kraken, I'm still in the mode of last night here. <clears throat> I had to laugh. One of the little kids come up last night and he says, Mister, he says, I thought Santa Claus was black. I said, not in this party, kid. <clears throat> they were so cute. But you had Andromeda. And she gets thrown into the sea. And she's rescued from the sea monster, the Kraken, by Perseus. You have Orion, another constellation you can see on the eastern horizon about 9 o'clock. And you can see his belt and his arms. And Orion's thrown into the sea. And he's rescued from the monster of the sea by a magic dolphin from Miami. <laughs> then you have Hercules. Now, Hercules... He's a great strong man, and he got swallowed up by a great sea monster. Yes, for three days and three nights, he's in this sea monster's belly. You see how it all kind of goes along with the Bible and what the world does? It brings all of those mythology stories, and then the world tries to take the story of Jonah and says it's a fable just like, just like all the other stories. And then you have the liberal theologians. Oh, we don't want to forget them, who spend their whole lives rummaging through the scriptures trying to find the mistakes that God made. Their whole life is dedicated to showing God how stupid he really is. How that he couldn't write a book that had well, without any error in it. So they go through and they take the story of Jonah and they say it's a fable. Of course, they don't believe that Adam and Eve's story is true. They don't believe that the Red Sea really departed. They call it the Sea of Reeds. They don't believe that, uh, uh, they don't believe there's a devil. They don't believe there's a hell. They could never conceive of God coming down and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah like the Bible said that he did. They're all fables that have been passed down over the years from father to son, son to father, mother to, you know, all that system goes, talked around the campfire, and here they wind up in a book called the Bible, but it's no different than the Greek or the Roman stories. It's no different than all of the other myths that are out there and the story of Jonah like the story of Adam and Eve and the, and the splitting of the Red Sea are just nice stories that carry principles, but they really didn't happen. Then you have the Baptist preachers. They're busy running around checking the naval archives trying to prove that the book of Jonah is true. 
So they spend all of their times going through the ancient mariner records, trying to find some case where somebody was swallowed by a whale and lived inside that whale's belly for three days and three. And lo and behold, in 1884, a British whaling ship out there whaling, hunting whales, a British seaman fell in the ocean and a gigantic whale actually more by accident than on purpose, because whales aren't, they're not like great white sharks. Boy, did you see the thing down in Australia this last week about that great white shark eating them surfers? Let me tell you something. If you ain't got enough sense to stay out of the water in Australia where there's great white sharks, you need to get eaten. I'll tell you, man. I mean, them suckers are out there, and they're saying, hey, it's lunchtime. Four stupid people just jumped in the water, man. <laughs> but that wasn't what a whale, a whale don't eat you. I mean, he may bump into you, but he does, if he eats you, it's by accident. And this British guy fell in and actually got eaten by this whale. And, and two days later, another whaling ship harpooned the whale, cut him open, and out fell this sailor. Still alive. Now, his hair was all gone. His skin had turned white like milk from the acid. And I'm sure he had one <laughs> terrified look on his face. <laughs> but nevertheless, he was alive. And the little Baptist preachers run around saying, see, 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 see. Here it is. The Bible's true. The book of Jonah is true. And all these things. That, see, there's a man that did live in a whale, so it can happen. Truth of the matter is this. I hate to keep bringing the Bible into this, but that's what we're here for. Jonah is one of the 21 types of Christ in the Bible. You know that. The book of Jonah is about the resurrection. And I got some terrible news for everybody that I've just mentioned. And that simply is, is that Jonah died in the whale belly. Matthew chapter 12, that great chapter that talks about this, says the only sign given to an evil and adulterous generation is the sign of Jonah. The resurrection. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, the next verse says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and, and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now here's the case. If Jonah didn't die, and he's the type... By, by the way, you've got to have a death to be resurrected. If Jonah didn't die, then Christ didn't die. This is a lot like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And that verse, it says, A virgin cow conceived, great prophecy, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Now all the new Bibles take the word virgin out, because they hate the virgin birth, and they put in a young woman. Everybody says, Well, what kind of sign is that that a, woman can, a young woman can conceive and have a child? Everybody does that. But a virgin conceiving, that's something else. Well, this is a lot like that. What difference is if a young woman conceives and have a child if she's not a virgin? And what's the big deal if, if, if he didn't die, then there can be no resurrection? He died. And the bottom line, if Jonah didn't die, and he's a type of the resurrection, and you've got to have a death to have a resurrection, then Christ didn't die. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16 and 17, that if Christ didn't die, then you and I are still in our sins. 
You see how easy it is? Now, it doesn't take anybody with any imagination to read Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and you find that there's a picture of Jonah dying. In fact, he says, God had brought me up from corruption. What does that mean, verse 6? It means he's dead, and he's beginning to decay, and God brought him up from corruption. And the book of Jonah is the greatest book in your Bible on the resurrection. That's why it's attacked. And that's why you need to understand it. And that's why it'll work for you and show you how the Bible comes together. Because the book of Jonah is the greatest book in the Old Testament that lays out the greatest doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine that your salvation and my salvation rests on, and that is the resurrection of Christ. And that's why it was the only sign given to the nation of Israel who was told to look for a sign in Exodus chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that sign is Christ coming out of that tomb once he was dead, now he's alive. And Jonah coming out of the belly of a whale, he was dead, now he's alive. Now doctrinally, I mean that's your story there, the story. Now doctrinally, book of Jonah is very crucial. And you know now that we've laid it out enough as we've studied the Bible that every book of the Bible has a doctrinal, historical, and inspirational application. I just gave you the historical one. The story actually happened. It's a true story. Now, doctrinally, doctrinally deals with the prophetic of it. Doctrinally deals with the aspect of the second coming of Christ or how it affects the future events. The book of Jonah is a picture of the tribulation period. Jonah is a Jew. He's a member of the nation of Israel. He's told to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a Gentile city. He's told to go to Nineveh and preach during the reign of Jeroboam to the Gentile. Jeroboam is one of the 18 types of Antichrist in the Bible. So what do we have? We have Jonah, who's a Jew, being told to go to Nineveh, who are Gentiles, preaching the message of God during a time of a man who's a type of the Antichrist. Jonah is a type of 144,000. He's a type in Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 7 of the 12,000 Jews from each tribe who are called to go during the tribulation period under the, under the attack of the Antichrist, typified by Jeroboam, to the Gentile nations and preach the message of God to them. That's how the book of Jonah lays out doctrinally. Now from a practical standpoint, and a practical standpoint is, what does it mean for you and me in our everyday lives? Historically, it's important because we need to know the framework of history and how the Bible fits in. That's what we're going to do with the Middle East on New Year's Eve. We're going to give you a framework of how everything fits into your Bible. So from a historical standpoint, it gives us a framework. From a doctrinal standpoint, it shows us how it's going to have a future reference of what Jonah pictures and shows us how God is going to do something in the future. But you know what? From an inspirational, from a practical standpoint, the book of Jonah is one of the greatest books for you and for me. And that's why I want to give you the first two, but I want to spend the majority time today on the one for you and for me. Because there's some things here that we need to know. Now, in the next coming year, we're going to start developing some ministries. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it a little bit New Year's, but I've also taken the next Sunday after New Year's to really... Focus in on that so 
we can really lay some things out to you understand where we've come from and where we're going. We've got all the time in the world here to do this over New Year's, so we're just going to kind of spread the thing out so we can do it well so everybody understands where we're at. But in the next year or so, God's been good to us. We've been uh, here almost a year and a half now, and God's been good to us. God's given us a number of men and women who really, uh, really uh, take the Word of God seriously in a way that uh, uh, I could never ask for. You know, it's just, it's just wonderful. And last night was a great testimony of that. But you're going to find that uh, the book of Jonah fits right in with where we're going. Because the book of Jonah is one of the greatest books in the Bible on ministry. It's one of the greatest books in the Bible from a practical standpoint that shows me and helps me understand as a Christian, Christian the mission of God. Now, do you ever notice today how that companies all have mission statements? You'll walk into a company and they'll say, our mission statement is we're going to provide the best quality service for our customers that we can, caring, you know, helping, uh, all the things. And they come up with a statement. And that statement is one little concept that projects to people who read it what this company is all about. Well, they stole that from the Bible, and, and that's okay. But you know what? The book of Jonah is God's mission statement. The book of Jonah is God's mission statement for you and for me as a child of God. And maybe I better take just a second explaining, explaining missions. Because when we talk about missions, the first thing that comes into our mind are missionaries. First thing we think is, oh, this ain't got nothing to do with me. I'm not going to China to be a missionary. I'm not going to Mexico. I'm not going to acupuncture or acupoco or whatever it is. I'm not going to any of those places. I'm going to stay right here. This, I'm going to tune him out. I can go ahead and think about the Chiefs game. I can go ahead and think about my Christmas left. I can, no, no, no. Missions, missions, missions in the Bible definition has nothing to do with foreign missions. There is no difference in God's mind between foreign missions and what you need to do with a child of God. The mission defined in the Bible is that God saved you to do a job for Him. That job is your mission. Simple as that. And, uh, and preachers today, they're so busy looking for that sailor that they have missed the concept of what missions really is. And everybody in here this morning, if you're saved, you are a missionary. You are a missionary. God may leave you in Kansas City the rest of your life. God may send you to uh, wherever around the world in time. But the bottom line is this. Once you get saved, the Bible says you have a mission for God in your life that you need to fulfill. And you fulfill that by lining up with the uh, three things in your life that you've got to have. One of them, if you're saved, you already have. That's the Holy Spirit of God. The second thing you've got to line yourself up with is the Word of God. The third thing you've got to line yourself up with is God's local church. That's the program of God. God gave you the Holy Spirit of God when He saved you to direct you. He gave you the Bible as the road map of the mission for your life, and He gave you the local church as the vehicle by which you get to where you need to go with God. It is as simple as that. It's as simple as that. But we have misdefined a lot of things in Christianity today, and because of it, we have lost the concept of missions. So God's people today, 
don't feel any obligation whatsoever for anything in the real call of God because we're so satisfied where we are and we think that when the preacher begins to talk about missions, he's talking about somebody other than me. Let me just say this to you. The day you got saved, God had a plan for your life. And someday at the judgment seat of Christ, and take warning in this, you will give an account for that. And you will give an account for that based on the Holy Spirit of God that God has given you, the Word of God which He has given you, and the vehicle that God provided for you to do it through. Now you can come up with every cockeyed concept to get around that and rationalize that that you want. And the bottom line is, at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit of God will hold you accountable and hold me accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for the mission. For the mission. God saved you for a purpose. God saved you and me for a reason. Now, the book of Jonah. And I've always loved the book of Jonah. It's a book that intrigued me. It's a book that when I saw its application to me, I, I, it really intrigued me. In all of my life, you know, I've heard Jonah in kind of like a blasé concept. All of my life, Jonah has been a book that has just been a very shallow form. I remember one time I heard years ago, I heard a preacher, you know, and he, he got up there and he was at a Bible conference and he was going to preach on Jonah. And I really didn't know a lot about Jonah then. And I remember he got up and he said, now folks, I'm going to give you an outline of the book of Jonah and this is going to be spectacular. He said, watch this. In Jonah, chapter 1, Jonah runs from God. In chapter 2, Jonah runs to God. In chapter 3, Jonah runs with God. In chapter 4, Jonah runs ahead of God. And he laid that whole thing out in that little basic form. And I guess if you're teaching three or four-year-olds or five-year-olds, that's good. But let me tell you something. If that's all that you can get out of the book of Jonah, you're in serious trouble this morning. Because that's exactly what we like to do. We like to take the book of Jonah and make the book of Jonah focus on what Jonah's doing. And when you do that, you miss the whole concept. The book of Jonah has nothing to do with what Jonah's doing. The book of Jonah has to do with what God's doing. And God's got a mission. And God called Jonah just like he called me and just like he called you to accomplish that mission. Hey, to me, the book of Jonah is real simple. It isn't about what Jonah is doing. It's about what God's doing. Jonah has a mission to accomplish. And God saved you and I and called us to that same mission. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And the book of Jonah is nothing more than God calling you and calling me to do that mission after we're saved. And you know what the book of Jonah really is? It shows the different responses to that call that God's people give. And it's one of the most tremendous books that really shows me why Christians don't really care about the things of God today. It's a book that opens up to me and helps me understand why God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven come up with every idea of what they want to do for God except what God has called them to do. It answers to me how men rationalize, how women rationalize their lifestyle, how they, how, they, how they come to the point of denial in their life, that they will not look at what God really wants them to do, that, brother, they get their own concept of the way it is, and that's just the way it is in spite of what the Word of God says. To me, the book of Jonah is the great answer why Christianity is broke and why God's people are broke. I don't mean without money. I mean broke down as in does not work. And I'm telling you, when I'm dealing with God's people, and I've dealt with them for 30 years, I see their lack of passion for God's mission, and I see it laid out so clearly in the book of Jonah. So I want to talk to you about it today.
And first thing I want to do is I want to read. I want to see some things here that you not understand. Let's read Jonah chapter 1, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittal, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today. We ask you, Father, to open up our hearts, allow us to see the things that you have for us today. We love you. Help us to bear these great truths out, Lord, in our lives, and every one of us to understand that God does have a mission for us, and that mission needs to be accomplished to the best of our ability. And we'll thank you and praise you now. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want you to see a couple of things here. Now, God has called Jonah, and here's how the story goes. God has called Jonah, go to that wicked city of Nineveh, and he stows the priest to that city. Now, the parallel is God has called you and I to take God's message to a lost and dying world. Now, Jonah refuses to go. And many of God's people take the same position, and they refuse to go. And what follows in this story is the great teaching on what I call game playing with God. We are the greatest rationalizers, and I've learned something else about my own life and other Christians, that denial is more than a river in Egypt. (laughs) We rationalize what we want to do, we give God the credit for it, we give God the glory for it, and God isn't a hundred million light years around what we're trying to do, and we do it because we want to get out of the conviction we're under because we are not fulfilling the mission. And the mission is where God has called you to take His Word to a lost and dying world. That is the mission. Now, in chapter 1, 2, and 3, God calls, and He says, No. If you would go over to chapter 3, and you would find verses 1, 2, and 3, you would find that he gets the same calling, and now he says, okay, I'll go. And what you have in between where he says, I won't go, and where he says, okay, I will go, is one of the greatest storms that you've ever seen in life. And running from God only leads to a storm of trouble in your life personally, in your family, in your job, in your marriage, running from God will lead to a storm of trouble every time. And it bounds through here in chapter 1, verse 3, but it says that Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish uh, from the presence of the Lord. When you decide in your heart you're going to do it your way instead of God's way, you are headed into the storm. It's as simple as that. He goes down in chapter 1 and verse 3, and the Bible says that he finds a ship. He finds a ship. And, and he plays the part. I mean, uh, when the storm comes, and uh, the sailors cast lots, and the lots fall upon him, which is another great principle, you can't hide from God no matter how hard you hide. No how big a smile you paint on your face. No how you pretend you're spiritual. But how much you depend you know about the Bible. Let me tell you something. When God's got your number, God's got your number. And everybody knew it. And when they confront him with a thing, he plays the part. He says, yes, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear God. No, he didn't. He didn't at all. He's running from God. 
Now boy, what you see down here is he finds a ship. And I bet you in his mind, here's how it went. Because I know me. And I know the way I do it. And I know God's people and I know the way they do it. And I'm telling you something. They come down through there and oh, God tells them to do something. And the first thing they do is they don't want to do it. So they find something else to do and say, God, thank you for that. God said, don't thank me. I had nothing to do with it. I want you to do this. And they keep on doing it because they don't want to do that. And they keep saying, well, thank you, Lord. Boy, you know what I bet he did? I bet he did this. I bet when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, I bet you he said in his mind, you know what, God? I don't think you really want me to go to Nineveh. I think you want me to go to Tarshish. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to test your, I'm going to go down to the boat dock, and if I find a ship waiting for me down there to Tarshish, I'm going to know that's God's will for my life. Boy, have I seen that over and over again. That's like Gideon. Gideon says, well, Lord, okay, you're going to deliver me, but I'm going to throw out the fleece, and if you'll make, the, make it get all wet, then I'll know. Well, why would you need that? He just told you from his word what he wanted you to do. Why do we need other confirmation when God tells us clearly in his word that we got a mission? I don't understand that. I don't understand it. I, I just don't figure it out. And then he comes down here and he says, hey, he says, when he finds a ship, he's at such a peace that he's made the right spiritual decision, he goes right down upon that ship and falls asleep. He had rationalized himself that he was right where God wanted him to be. And in chapter 1, verse 3, listen, what a great truth. Boy, the Bible doesn't miss a trick. Bible says when he went down there and found that ship, he went down there and went to sleep. The Bible gives you one little thing you don't want to miss. It says he paid the fare thereof. Let me tell you something. When you decide to go your way, you always pay the trip ticket. You go God's way, he pays the trip ticket. That's why some of God's people's marriages are in a mess today. That's why some of their personal lives are in a mess today. That's why they have to go through everything in life they got to do. That's why they got all the screwed up things in their life. You know why? A long time ago, God said, I want you to do this. You said, I want to do that. You rationalized and justified it, and you're paying the fare this morning. Simple as that. Hang on, we'll be through here in a minute. You can get out of here. Now, that's the general story. But, boy, it doesn't stop there. Doesn't stop there. You know why people don't like the Bible? I'll tell you the truth. Because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, verse 13 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing of the son of the soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow. Watch this. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are open and naked under the eyes of which we have to do. That Bible reads your thoughts and intents of your heart before your lie comes out of your mouth. That book will nail me to the wall before my rationalization even gets formed. We think we're so smart that we can get around God and we can play the games with God and we can do the things in spite of the fact that God has called us to a mission with a job and everything we got. And let me tell you something. That book's got read my meter before I ever get out of the house in the morning. And that's why we don't like it. That's why we'd rather do something else than read it. That's why we have the problem we got in our life. That's why the storm's raging in our lives today. That's why we've got the personal problems we've got. 
You know, the book of Jonah is a great study on the book of Acts chapter 8. I don't know if you, you know that study or story or not, but in Acts chapter 8, you have the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I always looked at that story as a great principle that all many other stories in the Bible go to. And in Acts chapter 8, you've got an old Ethiopian eunuch who's out there on the backside of the desert who's sitting on his chariot reading the book of Isaiah chapter 53, which, by the way, is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Then you've got Philip who's over here in a... In a uh, great revival going on in Samaria, God picks up Philip out of Samaria, brings him right over to the backside of that desert where there isn't anybody around, plops him right down in that guy's chariot, and then says, go join your man, go, go join yourself to that chariot. And the ensuing conversation that takes place, he opens up the scriptures, he tells him about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and he wins that Ethiopian to the Lord. You know what the great concept is? Two great concepts. God had a prepared sinner, that Ethiopian eunuch. Bible doesn't tell you how he got the book of Isaiah, but somebody gave it to him. You know how? God got it to him. God, it doesn't say how he got there. It doesn't say what made him stop his chariot. I don't think chariots could have flat tires back then, but something happened. Maybe the horse is sick. I don't know. But something, God in, intervened and stopped that chariot, and that old boy is saying, well... AAA won't be here for a while, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, hook her toe and gonna make it for a while. He's out there, you know. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here. And so he says, Well, you know what? I got this book here, and he's sitting down on the back of that chariot, reading Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and shedding his blood for his sins. And then he looks over and ooh, where'd you come from? And old Philip comes up and he says, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I except some man should guide me? Translating that to common everyday language is, you know what? I'm as lost as a goose in a hailstorm, and I need somebody to point me to Christ. Could you do it? Philip says, no problem. And the Bible says that he opened to the same scriptures and preached unto him Jesus. That little boy got saved. That little boy got baptized. What a story. But you know the two concepts? You had a prepared sinner, but you also had a prepared servant. You know what you got in the book of Jonah? You got a prepared sinner, the whole nation of Nineveh, but no prepared servant. You know what's wrong today in Christianity? You got a world that's prepared to get saved with nobody to tell them the story. Too many Jonahs around today. I'm telling you. Because what follows in chapter 3 and 4 is a picture of the inside mindset of the Laodicean church and Laodicean Christians, which we are all a part of. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God has a mission for us just like He did for Jonah. As the church, as Christians, we're to carry the message of God to the heathen. And you know what? God had it all set up. Well, look at chapter 1, verse 10 and 17 sometime. Why? Well, Jonah never preached a message. He just brought a storm and the sailors on a ship got converted. He never even opened the Bible. God has prepared sinners here. The problem is, he doesn't have a prepared servant. And I'm telling you, God had it all set up. Jonah has two problems. 
And those, those two problems are the same two problems that we, feast, uh, we, that we, uh, we, we are up against today. When I, when I read through this thing, when I read through this book, I, I, something great comes to mind. You know the concept of obedience for a child of God is unparalleled in the Bible. And along with obedience comes attitude of heart. Those two things are the key to the Christian's success. Your attitude of heart toward your obedience. Because when I come through this thing, here's what I find. I find that the sea, though raging, obeys God. I find the wind, though howling beyond control, obeys God. I find that the unsaved sailors obey God. If that wasn't enough, a little bit later on, God grows a gourd. The gourd obeys God. If that wasn't enough, God raises up a little worm. And the worm obeys God. Then God prepared a great fish. And the fish obeyed God. The book of Jonah is about everything obeying God except God's man. You wonder what's wrong with the world today? There it lies. Jonah had his own agenda. I don't, know, I don't know what else to tell you. And you know what? Some of you be mad at me right now for what I'm saying, but the bottom line is the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to come up, put your arm around me, and you're going to say, man, I wish I listened. And I'm going to say to you, you know what? I wish I listened too, because we're both in the same mess. We better learn it this morning. The concept of obedience. The only thing that won't obey God in this story is God's man. What a picture. What a picture in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, of his selfish attitude, of rejecting God's mission. He heads down into the ship, falls fast asleep, tries to get as comfortable as possible, while the whole world around him dies and goes to hell. Wow. Wow. Saw on the news this morning as I was getting ready to come to church. Michael Jackson, out there in California, his big old property called Never Neverland. No, I don't care about Jackson one way or the other. I watched that thing out there and all the rides and all the horses and all the stuff and all the things and that big old sign said Never Neverland. And some of the people were criticizing Michael Jackson for the way he is. And I could care less how he is. But let me tell you something. I come away this morning as I was putting my tie on. Looking in the mirror, and a great thought struck me. Michael Jackson ain't got the only one has got Never Never Land he lives in. God's people go there all day long. The Never Never Land, living in a dream world. Putting reality aside of a lost world dying and going to hell. Put the reality aside of a mission God's called you to do. Coming up with every excuse, every idea, every concept that gets you around it. And then walking out in the morning into Never Never Land with all of its horsey rides, and all of its Ferris wheels, and all of its cotton candy, and all of its splendor, and all of its nice music, and all of the fun things. That's what Jonah did. He went down into that ship into Never Never Lamb, got himself all comfortable as he could, fell fast asleep. The only problem with him is the same problem we got today. While we're in Never Never Lamb, the world dies and goes to hell without Christ. The first problem Jonah has, he simply says, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to obey you, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Wow, what a picture. 
So he goes through a storm in his life. Oh, boy. The great wake-up call of God when you're asleep. Just like God's called you and me, brother, and our lack of passion for the things of God and our rationalization for the things we want to do, it only brings a storm in our lives. And that's why we're so miserable. And oh, but when the great wake-up call comes. Second problem he's got. Chapter 3, finally he gives in. Just like a lot of God's people. And he says, okay, I'll go, but I don't like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You come down through chapter 3, verse 5, watch this. A great revival breaks out in Nineveh. Two million people probably get saved. And in chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. God just won a whole nation to Christ. And Jonah's upset. And Jonah's angry. And Jonah's displeased. He can't see what God's doing for seeing himself. I'll tell you what. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. And boy, that's so true. God's people need a vision. And a vision simply defined, my friend, as seeing the world, seeing your family, seeing the things around you, not as you see them, but as God sees them. A vision, my friend, is understanding God saved you and God gave you a mission. And someday you're going to give an account of that mission. And just as a sailor, when he goes off a ship, he's on liberty. And when he goes back to that ship, he has to give an account of that liberty. Paul says in the book of Corinthians that you and I have liberty in Christ. Sure, you can do whatever you want to do. But just as that sailor, when you go home to that mother ship, you're going to give an account of your liberty. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you'll give an account of the liberty that we so liberally use to do whatever we want to do in spite of the mission of God. He just couldn't see God for seeing himself. And boy, God's people need a vision. My job someday, whether you like it or not, is to hold that vision before you. My job, my friend, is to take the Word of God and not to make you feel good about yourself, but to make you feel good about what God is doing in your life. And when you don't do what's right in your life, feel bad about it. That's what the vision is. When you get the vision, then you, when you, you, you see the things of God. When you don't get the vision, then all you see is yourself. That's Jonah. Jonah sees Nineveh as the enemy of Israel. God sees Nineveh as a nation without God. Jonah only cares about his comfort. God sees the discomfort of a whole lost nation without God. Oh, Jonah, the Bible says, the Bible says, but it displeased him. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He's mad. The mission of God interfered with his three-day weekend. He's running around there. Well, I don't know what God's problem is. We had revival in our church scheduled on May 14th, 15th, and 16th. If God didn't bring it then, that's his problem. Here it is, November. I got things I want to do, places I want to go, people I want to do, and now God's going to bring a revival. You see, that's what's wrong with us. That's what churches do today. Oh, we'll schedule revival in, in May, 15th, 16th, or 17th. Put God on a timetable. God help us if God bring revival in October. But that's the way we are. We schedule ourselves, we rationalize ourselves, we put God on some timetable like we are. God doesn't run by any timetable. God runs by a book. And oh, Jonah, he's mad. The mission of God has interfered with his, his time. 
The, inter- the mission with God has, has, how could God do this? Man, I had plans, and I wanted to go do this, and I want to go do that. How could the mission of God could, could do that to me? I'm going to tell you something. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 lays out one of the greatest concepts of you being an a obedient child of God. God tests your Christian character. He really does. All of us. And God will put things into your life, bring events into your life, for one reason. To see if you're willing to do whatever God wants you to do. 99% of being a child of God and being a good child of God and being a faithful child of God is just simply being willing. I've known men that had to submit to go into the mission field to some foreign country and be willing. And then God never called them to that place. God called them to something else. But the issue is God just wanted to see if they were willing. Because willing is your attitude. I don't care what anybody says. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 12 says, For if, it, for if thee be first, for if, for if thee first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Willing mind. The test of your Christian character, or lack of it, is your obedience to be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. Things like last night just don't happen by accident. You're going to tell me you aren't all busy this year? Somebody else says, well, I didn't get involved because I was busy. Like the rest of you didn't have anything to do? You know what the bottom line is? You were willing. And the importance of that last night to me is seeing who is willing to go shopping, who is willing to do this, who is willing to do that, whatever the case may be. Because that's where it starts with God's mission in your heart to be willing. And the storm that comes into our lives simply because we want to do our own thing and justify it, oh, look at me, look at what I'm doing, when it has nothing to do with the mission of God because the mission of God has to do with your willingness to do whatever God wants you to do. No wonder Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 says that he that hath no rule over his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. The instability of God's people today, allowing the circumstances of life to rule your emotions. And those emotions rule you instead of the promises of the Word of God. That's Jonah. Oh, yeah. You come to chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, God prepared a gourd, and he's happy. Oh, he's so happy. Because he gets under that little gourd. And that little gourd just shadows him from that old blistering heat. Oh, and he's the prophet of God that's out there, you know. And so far, he's the only one in this whole book that's disobeyed God, everything else. But Jonah's got this mindset that he thinks he's doing what God wants him to do. When deep down inside, he knows he's not. Jonah is a miserable person. Jonah is a lazy, self-centered I mean, he just, I don't know what to tell you about this guy. And yet he pictures so many times my life. Oh, God help me not to be a Jonah. In chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, God prepared a gourd, and now suddenly he's happy. Oh, a gourd, oh, shading me, oh, I'm so happy now. The air conditioner's fixed. Then in chapter 4, verse 7, God prepared a worm. And to smoke the gourd, and now he wants to die. Oh, how I've seen that. Up one day and down the next. You don't have to go to Chief Stadium during the game to see the wave. 
Just hang out with some of God's people. Up today, down tomorrow. I'm fine today. I'm bad today. Oh, I'm on top of it today. I'm happy. I'm I'm seasick talking to you, man. That's Jonah. Oh, God prepared a gourd. I'm so happy. Oh, the worm. The gourd died. Oh, I want to die. Please do. I want to tell you something. The missing element in God's people today is a hardness. I'm not talking about not being compassionate. I'm talking about being tough. Now, I understand young Christians that just get plugged into the Bible, and I'm not even talking to you about this. Because I know there's takes, just like going to boot camp, nobody's a soldier when you first get to boot camp, but you are when you get out. So you're in boot camp. You're doing your push-ups. You're doing your mile run, five-mile run. You're climbing the obstacles. You're doing that. You're learning to be tough. You're learning to get there. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about God's people that just, uh, just whine about everything. I'm talking about God's people that are just, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger said it better than I could ever say it, girly man. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Thou therefore endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know it or not. This next week marks the 60th anniversary of a place called Bastogne. 1944, 101st Airborne Division. Surrounded by a 6th Panzer SS Division and all of Seth Dietrichs and as Hitler tried to make one last final breakout to win World War II, and almost did, surrounded the little crossroads city of Bastogne in Belgium. 101st Airborne was cut off as the 6th Panzer Army ringed that city and blasted that place. Those guys out there in the coldest winter in the Ardennes Forest in the history of, in the history of Belgium had no warm clothes. Many of them had only two or three rounds, no food, no ammunition. No medevac, nobody coming in. When those guys got shot and wounded, they relied on the freezing weather to stop the bleeding by freezing the blood. Those poor boys went out there, boy, and they suffered through that, and they suffered through that, and I mean for 10, 15, 20 days, brother, they got pounded. Nothing to eat, no warmth, couldn't build a fire. Every time somebody lit a fire, mortar, German mortars come in and kill two or three more of them. I mean, they were surrounded, completely ringed. I mean, the hundred old General McAuliffe there in Bastogne. Finally, the Germans, the Germans needed that city because it was the crossroads to Belgium. Finally, uh, the, the general uh, sent down one of, his, uh, one of his lieutenants and captains to come in there to General McAuliffe and ask him if they would surrender. And old McAuliffe said, nuts. He wasn't going to surrender. And boy, I'll tell you what, for 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 days, those old boys held out with nothing to eat, freezing to death. Some of those boys in those foxholes, when it finally broke over, their feet were so black they couldn't even crawl out from frostbite. There wasn't one of them that left their position. When he didn't have bullets, they fired rocks, threw rocks. When he ran out of rocks, they fixed bayonets. And they held that German, they held that line, the Germans never got through. I've often looked at that and thought to myself, the average Christian today doesn't even know where Bastogne is. If you had to put it on a map, you wouldn't know where it was. You'd think it was in southern Missouri someplace, down around your favorite fishing spot. And yet that Bible says that we're to endure a hardness as Christians as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I'd like to see some of God's people in Bastogne. 
Every year this time of year, I think of <coughs> Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor on December 7th. And shortly after that, the real story wasn't Pearl Harbor. The real story was Wake Island. That little atoll out there between Midway and, and, and Hawaii. Held out by a little marine, couple of marine companies. The whole Japanese Navy. The whole Japanese Navy was going to wipe out Midway. They thought they'd push Midway over. And you know what? <coughs> Those boys could have surrendered. They did finally surrender to him, but only when they were ordered to because they had nothing else. And the commander said, I can't sacrifice any more lives. But the Marines were mad about it. They didn't want to surrender. Just like the 101st Airborne. Old Patton, 3rd Army, was running to Bastogne, and the news line said that the, the Patton liberated the 101st. Till this day, you'll never find a 101st Airborne soldier that said they needed relief from anything. That's what they got, man. That's what they got. Those old Marines on Wake Island, boy, they suckered the Japs in. The Japs thought they would wipe them out, and they shot out their Air Force. I mean, the whole Japanese, three carriers, man, the whole Japanese uh, Air Force coming down on them. They had six little outdated fighters. Shot out of the sky the first day. But you know what they did? Those Japs, those Japs bombed them and shot them and shelled them, and they covered up with camouflage, and the Japanese plane flew over, and they thought, ah, we destroyed this place, and those ships started coming in, and they held their fire, and when those ships got so close that you couldn't miss them, they opened up, and they sunk half their fleet. But then the, then the Japanese are really mad, and they pounded them and tried to take them and take them, and they couldn't. They couldn't. And those boys knew there was no help coming. They knew nobody was coming. There wasn't going to be no Arizona come down. She was laying at the bottom of, the, of, the, of Ford Island. There wasn't no help coming. America had her throat cut. And she needed time to mend. And those boys were a holding action. And they all knew that they were expendable. And boy, instead of whining and crying about going home for Christmas and doing this and being that, they stayed in those foxholes and they held the line. And brother, let me tell you something. When finally a message came through, when somebody said... What can we do? What do we need to give you? How can we help? That old commander, boy, he caught on that phone. He says, what, what do you need? And he says, send us some more Japs. Whew. And you know what? Those boys died on that beach, Wake Island, just like they did in Bastogne. And the average private probably made 20 bucks a month. And you get some of God's people get in one business meeting or somebody doesn't say hi to them, they don't get where they go, or they hear one message they don't like, get their nose bent on a joint, never go back to church again. That's what's missing. That's what's missing. Boy, when Batan fell in Corregidor, boy, I've watched those boys on TV and watched them in newsreels and documentaries where they walked 60, 70 miles in the blazing sun with the Japanese. Some of those boys with dysentery so bad, they were carrying their own intestines in their hands. Never quit. I'll tell you what, and it's the political argument, I don't care to get into it, but let me just say this to you. There's some good reasons to have a draft in a country. There's some things a young man learns going in there when he gets his bottle taken out of his mouth. I'm not saying you can't learn it without it. Some of them do, some of them don't. But God's people lack a hardness today. <laughs> I just thought of this story. Remember, years ago, you were just a little kid. I don't know how you got from that point as tough as you are now. But I remember, I came home one day from work, and Mom said to me, Barb said, Kelly sprained her wrist today. And I said, is it bad? She said, no, it's okay. And I said, okay. So I put my stuff down, and I, she's in her bedroom. I said, Kelly, remember this? I said, Kelly, you Okay. Yeah, Daddy, I'm okay. Well, come out here and let Daddy see you. 
Here's what came out of the room. I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Callie, come on, let Daddy see you. Remember that? I said, Barb, what's she doing? She said, she's actuating her ouchie. <clears throat> Boy, I've seen a lot of God's people do that over the years. Taking a little nothing, turn it into a Greek tragedy. Let me tell you something. My verse for ministry. I've never really given this to anybody. I've given you other verses, but I've never given you this. This is my verse for ministry. I had it for 30 years. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. Boy, I've needed it sometimes. He says, be of good courage. Let us play the man for our people and for the city of our God and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. What a verse. You know, back in the dark ages, two men, one of them named Latimer, the other one named Ridley, two Bible believers out of Waldensian stock, were taken by the Roman Catholic Church and were treated as heretics and were going to be burned alive. And as they put the wood around them and they stand side by side, they tied them to those stakes and they were getting ready to light that fire, Ridley began to, to buckle under the strain. And old Latimer says, Master Ridley, play the man! Play the man. Quoting out of Second Samuel chapter after 10. You know what? You know what God's people need to do? Need to play the man. Need to play the man. Need to play the man for our people and for the city of our God and then let God do whatever He wants to do that seemeth Him good. Play the man. Play the man. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians is a great book on ministry. In those first four chapters, he talks about Christian suffering. And this is one of those seven things that I told you a couple of weeks ago that seven things in your Bible, a child of God not to be ignorant of, and one of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, not to be ignorant of God's suffering. Of course, we are. And in that great chapter, he comes down there and he uses words like tribulation, afflicted, anguished, grieved, troubled, distressed, perplexed, forsaken, cast down, beaten, stoned, 139 stripes, shipwrecked, rods on my back, Perils unto death. He said, there were times that I didn't know if I was going to make it through the night and with all the great anguish and the grieving and the troubles and the distress and the perplexion and being forsaken. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceedingly external weight of glory. He compared all of those things that would put any of us on the floor as light affliction. You know what? You can tell a lot about a child of God by what gets him mad. Jonah's glad when his comfort level is okay. And he's mad when the mission of God disrupts his lifestyle. He sees what only affects him. He's so soft and wimpy to everything around him. He's run by his emotions. Uh, and, and I say all that, and I'm just about done. But I say all, everything I've said so far, I've said because I want you to get this point. You need to see this. We're almost done here. Chapter 4, verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, 
and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from the grief. Wah, wah, wah. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm. When the morning arose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement waste wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. Wow, wow, wow. I said everything I've said for this next great concept, and you better get it. I call this the great worm concept. God made a gourd and he's happy. Now God took the gourd and he's sad. Great lesson you better learn, soldier. God can take it away as fast as he gives it to you. Don't you get hung up on the circumstances of life. Don't you get focused on the ups and downs of the things that go on, good or bad. You learn to take it as it is and realize that you have a mission and you're a soldier. And part of being a soldier is enduring hardness. The good times and the bad times. Don't be such a wimp. Don't be such a cop-out. Oh, I understand if you're young and you're growing. Hey, you got to struggle through it. You're in boot camp. But I'm talking about God's people, man, that ought to know better. While we're at it, let's don't miss this. Chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, and came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more uh, than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? Wow. Jonah's so satisfied and so self-centered. He's so settled into his own comfort, even in the midst of this rationalized storm. He thinks that the problems he's got financially, physically, and all that is just because he's suffering for God when actually he's not doing anything. Light affliction. He's a wimp. And that's his problem. He's so satisfied and self-centered and settled his own comfort. We all get there. Well, I'm not telling you anything that I ain't been through. We all have. We all do. He fails to see the most important thing. You know what it is? It's the next generation of kids. 120,000 kids, the Bible says, that don't know right from wrong. God said, Jonah, you ain't seeing this thing straight. Sure, it's about the people getting saved. But you know what will change this nation? It'll change this nation as the next generation of this nation. Teaching those kids about me. Teaching those kids. You know where the next generation of this church is? It's not in you and me. It's not in the people we're into Christ. It's the kids in that nursery two, two doors down. That's the next generation. Who would say I don't want to be part of this? Who would say I don't want to be part of this church's next generation? Jonah would. Jonah would. Jonah would. What parent says, I'm so busy being a soul winner. I'm so busy being a discipler. I'm so busy being a counselor. Let me help you with all your problems. They lose their own kid to the world. Jonah would. Jonah would. You see, the book of Jonah isn't about what Jonah is doing. It's about what God wants to do. And you're in my response to it. God had a mission for Jonah. God's got a mission for you and for me. And you and I have a response to it. It's all about attitude. It's all about willingness. It's all about your comfort level. It's all about our selfishness. It's all about our self-centered world. It's all about our lack of courage and our lack of discipline and our lack of hardness. 
It's all about us being a wimp and weak. It's all about us not rising above our circumstances. It's about us blaming our problems on everything else and everybody else instead of taking responsibility for ourselves. It's about the rise and fall of our emotions, running our lives, up one day and down the next. I'm happy today. I want to die tomorrow. It's our refusing the call of God's mission in our lives that brings the storms in our lives that we look around and wonder why our lives are in the mess that they're in, why our families are in the mess they're in, why our own personal lives, why we can't get victory, why we struggle with this, we've struggled for this, we struggle with that. It all comes down to a lack of attitude and our willingness to do whatever God calls us to do. God saved you for one reason. He's given you a mission. You have a response to it. And that response will wind up at the judgment seat of Christ, but on this life, it'll be the course of your storm of life. Now, I'm not going to tell you that if you take that mission, that you won't have a storm in your life. You will. The devil's going to knock you six ways from Sunday, either way you go. But I want to tell you something, I'm going to say this is true. Whatever storm I go through in life, it's always better for me personally when I know I'm going through it because I'm doing something right than it is when I'm going through it because of something I did wrong. That's the book of Jonah. And that's what we're looking at. That's where we're at. We have got the most tremendous group of people that I could ever hope for. I have got men and women that will do whatever. I've got men and women that will do whatever needs to be done. I've got men and women, and I know that God is going to, it, it, it's because if this church is going to do something for God in these last days, not because of me, not because of, of anything other than that book and your willingness to let God have you and your willingness to let God mold you and shape you however he chooses to do that. That is something that you never want to lose. That is something that you always want God to cultivate. Don't ever get to the place in your life where you're telling God what you will or what you won't do. Because when you do, the storm's coming. And this church is dead. This church is dead and broke just like all of Christianity for the most part. And I know there's good men and women out there and there's good churches. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just saying they don't call it the legacy in church rights of the people for, any, for nothing. We got a mission. Next year we focus that mission. We fine tune that mission. We start working in small groups. Putting things together. To make it happen in people's lives. That you become what you need to be. The older ones who know what's going on. Help the younger one. Everybody gets everybody away. And then God opens the door. For our mission. Our mission here. Our mission around the world. But the door came a crack just a little bit last night. And we got to see how God will pull something together so quickly. Somebody, I forget who, several people have told me, Bob, I don't know how, I don't know how that thing went so Pat was one of them. I don't know how that thing went so quick so good. We just, you know, we were behind the eight ball. I wasn't trying to show it, but I was behind the eight ball. I mean, I didn't have a lot of time. I couldn't get the name from the lady. They didn't know us. We didn't know them. I'm being Mr. Politicker here and, and working everything out and trying to get all the things and prouding people to give me what I need. And I got to get you all motivated. We got all these. I got to call all the families one at a time. We got to tell you know what a chore that is. We got to all get it. And so many, several people said, how, you know, it wasn't about any of that. The thing that made it work is the thing that will always make it work. 
your willingness. Your willingness to jump down on that slit trench with your preacher and say, Bob, let's get it done. I don't care what it is. I don't care about how deep the mud is. I don't care how tough it is. Bob, come on. Let's make it happen. Willing. Right attitude. We'll make it work every time. Every time. Father, 